Hey guys, welcome to episode 32 of the Strength Ratio podcast featuring Jeff Nichols. Jeff is a former Navy SEAL, has been a strength coach for 18 plus years, and is now the owner of Performance First, so make sure to go check that out. This episode uh, was a lot of fun to record. We cover things like tactical training, a little bit about mental toughness, and purpose, process, and love. Uh, some of the audio on our end got a little muffled at times, but everything comes through nice and clearly. So bear with us, and I hope you enjoy the show. Please send us any feedback or comments you guys have, and or any guests you'd like to see in the future. Thanks, guys. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to episode thirty-two of the Strength Ratio Podcast. I'm Zachary Greenwald, joined as always by Kyle Kachenko. And today, our guest is Jeff Nichols. Nichols. <laughs> Sorry, Jeff. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking ahead on getting your credentials right, and I blotched your last name. That's, that's embarrassing. But uh, Jeff is a former Navy SEAL. Jeff is a strength coach at present. He formerly owned uh, Virginia High Performance in Virginia Beach, and now is the owner of Performance First. Jeff, welcome to the show. I appreciate you both having me. So we first heard about Jeff on a podcast that he was on, and here was someone who had a military background, and we work with athletes who are in the military in different sectors, and that can be a, a population that you have to work hard to communicate with about the work that they did to get them there, which was oftentimes very hard grunt work sustained over multiple, multiple years, might not be what they have to do to continue to succeed on a long timeline. Yet here Jeff was with a Navy SEAL background talking about things like longevity and sustainability. And sometimes when we question ourselves and we think maybe this whole science, uh, evidence-based stuff is nonsense and we should just start selling out with the latest fads, we're reminded that we think we're well on point and we hear someone as knowledgeable as Jeff and we want to invite him on the show. So, uh, Jeff, if you can speak a little bit more to perhaps your training history and how that's evolved over time, uh, at least in terms of like the focus or, or mindset around it, uh, if that was just the education that you received that really improved the training or if it was more through your own experience. Uh, and perhaps just being self-taught about how best to train over time. Yeah, I think uh, it's it's a multifaceted question, of course. And it's it's a little bit of everything you'd mentioned. Was it taught? Was it learned? It was both. And it was in phases. So before coming in the military, having not experienced military service, specifically going through selection and assessment, you don't really know what it's like, right? You can only look at what the information is giving you, given to you, and then try to formulate the best plan you can to move forward. So, as I looked at the training, as a because I've been a strength coach now, this is my 19th year. I've been an exercise physiologist for almost 20. I was a strength coach in college before I even joined the Navy. So, I had this really unique sort of, I guess, toolbox to better evaluate, at least I thought I held myself to a different standard, I guess, because I was like, well, I don't have any excuses as to why can't I prepare for this? It's it's just physicality, it's just physics and, and physiology. So 
fortunately, I had a lot of good coaches to help me uh, kind of trailblaze this a little bit. I went to the track coaches. I went to other coaches and said, hey, how would you run this training? And basically the summary came up to be, well, you're pretty much a decathlete. That's that's kind of what you're training for. Be, be pretty good at everything, but not be stellar at one thing to deplete other sort of capabilities. So, and then as I got into the community, that seemed that seemed pretty accurate. I guess the biggest change was, and I say this a fair amount, I say, what gets you in won't keep you in. And that goes along with a lot of things, but specifically training, like, for example, buds, I don't want to train my athletes that are active duty as if they're trying to prep for buds, unless that's what they're trying to do, because we are a byproduct of what we, you know, how we train and what we do. Because when someone blanket statement says, well, I just want to go strength training, well, that doesn't work for me. I won't, because strength is defined by physics. So, what are the real goals? I guess, and I think that's, I guess, that's the basic, the overall arching point for all this is that nothing that is no no physical demand that's placed on a military, law enforcement, or firefighter is a new thing. In in terms of mass, force, direction, body type, it's we're not reinventing the wheel, and there's so much confusion within the tactical space, or it, quite frankly, in the sports space too a lot of information, misinformation, and there doesn't need to be. Like there certainly needs to be a, a, a an education, which there's there's when there's confusion, there's lacking education. When we properly educate, confusion should go away. And that's really my ploy is really to educate the best I can because at the end of the day, the if you have a good teacher, Right or have a good mentor, you're going to need less of that individual as time goes on because they should have they should be teaching you. So if, if someone asked you, like what, and I don't know if other tactile uh, coaches would answer this question with a, like a specific field, but if someone asked you, like, well, what uh, what do you align yourself with? Like what do you follow? You would probably answer along those lines that you just mentioned, like physics and physiology, right? Yeah. So um, is there something in the military as it stands now uh, that you think is, is progressive, uh, like is moving in the direction that you've made yourself? Um, or are you looking to, in your own uh, coaching and athlete development, looking to do things that you think are ahead of where the military is currently when it comes to a training perspective. Yeah, the answer to that, from what I've seen, I've I fortunately my my time in service, I got to see the beginning stages of what's called now the POTIF, the preservation of the force, and it really is this. It's a multifaceted program that includes the human performance model that now is being disseminated across specifically special operations and now getting pushed into. Uh, the big army and big Marine Corps and so forth like that, because there is a model. The model is staff it, right? Get good programming out and then constantly do evaluation. Like, are these people getting better, healthier? Is their operational output it just, is it, is it improving? Are we, are we minimizing injury? And some units are doing, doing better than others. Uh, most of all of SOCOM has these, these people staffed and are doing a great job. And I think that, you know, from my standpoint, I don't need to impact that so much because there are really, really great 
ethical, knowledgeable strength coaches working within that that military space. So for me, I kind of look at it like, well, how I love the community I come from, although I'm not privileged privileged to be in it. How is it that I continue to help support it? Well, it's an it's it's the initial stage of education, right? If I can help the best I can to prepare these individuals when they then get to the units that have staffing with strength coaches, dietitians, sports psychologists, athletic trainers, those list goes on and on. This is it's not the first time they're trying to uh, understand this post-injury, right? Because really we're looking at mitigation of injury, right? And fatigue management. And if we are able to do that, injuries come down, they tend to. Um, and that just goes, well, how do we do that? Well, we do that in training, you know, give them a good information, give them a standpoint of their own assessment, like, well, am I overtrained? Am I not? Like all these sort of things that there are common questions to them. And unfortunately, right, not unfortunately, the staff that's active duty, I'm sorry, the, the, not the active duty, the civilian staff supporting the active duty units, they don't have time to step in my shoes and and do like the the pre-education because they're super busy with the with the active duty folks and they deserve their attention. So for me, I don't have access to the active duty folks necessarily. I do, but that's not my target. I'm trying to educate the best I can. So my hope is that we all realize that we're all forgive the vernacular. Our guns are all pointing the same direction, right? We're all trying to positively affect all these these wonderful men and women trying to serve and. It's not this, hey, this is my ball. I'm going to go home. This is proprietary. That's a bunch of nonsense because the last time there was a really true evolution in in strength and conditioning and exercise physiology spread to the masses was like probably the periodization model in the 30s. That's the last time we've ever gone like, how do we do a back squat? How do we really do it? This is really old information. So I'm just hoping that we all can kind of get together and help these people out because they're extremely underserviced. Um, and you talked uh, briefly before about there being a lot of uh, confusion in the tactical training uh, community or industry. Um, what are some things that you look at when an individual comes to you in terms of preparing them for going into the military or if they have, uh, they want to go more special, special forces route? Um, Zach mentioned, obviously, you're to physics and physiology, but is there certain uh, characteristics in terms of their training that you look for uh, and things of that nature? Yeah, the first thing I do with any athlete, and, and this really, folks, is this is not proprietary to me. Any coach, teacher, mentor that's worth their salt, the very first thing they should do is a needs analysis. What does that mean? It means it's just kind of the word play. It's what does this person need? So we got to analyze this individual so we can determine what they need. You know, what, what are your weaknesses? What are their strengths? What do they really need to work on? How do we prioritize this based off of what I say, their state of readiness? You get somebody that's a college athlete that just came off, right? They're really going to be predisposed to that sport, right? If you have a sedentary individual, uh, maybe they were a previous athlete, but they've been sedentary for two years. They are going to have some particular states that need to be addressed first before you get, because we just kind of lump everything in as we call it strength training and training and working out. But when you get to a certain point in life, when you have a particular goal in mind, whether it's sport or the tactical space, we should be able to look at that and say, wow, okay, my running really needs work, but I'm a great swimmer. 
Well, so you probably want to focus more on running than swimming or someone's like, I was a prior, you know, offensive lineman and I'm trying to go to ranger school and I weigh 265. Well, so the question is, well, do I drop weight first or do I, you know, get stronger? Like it's always that, that universal question. I want to get big and lean. Which one do I do first? Because you're not going to do them both simultaneously with equal effectiveness. So I think that that's the big thing. When I look at the military, I go, all right, where are you going? What are your shortfalls? And, and typically, like I'm saying, shortfalls, you need to improve running, all these sort of things. And then really, once you've had that conversation, you got to look at this individual and see how they move. I always say movement matters most because a lot of times they may like, well, I really need to improve my running, but their gait is really off, for example, and I could go down the weeds for that. But just say, let's just say that they just run, are running goofy. Just picture that in your head. You see someone on the sidewalk and they're just – they just obviously look tired, sore, and they're in pain because they're, they're just running poor, form is poor. Well, we can't impact that a lot of times on running, for example. So what we do is we impact that with a little bit of mass in a weight room. We have them move slow. Learn the, We have to relearn those patterns. And if, if we can do that with adding a little bit of mass as opposed to velocity, then great. And it just really becomes this. That's why coaching in person becomes so valuable is because you actually get to know athletes and it's tough to do in this market, I guess, because there's so many people that want to improve and I can only get my hands, so to speak, on so many people to help them. I think a, a good comparison would be, especially for the tactical athletes, is use the strength conditioning to really get at the adaptations for hypertrophy, strength, endurance, et cetera, et cetera. And then if you do go to the training, that's where you'll learn a lot of like the, obviously all the tactical skills and mental toughness, but uh, I'm sure you've seen this as well. People try to bring that, just like other sports, into the weight room and try to cause like confusion or things like that, saying that that's what you're going to have to experience. But uh, you won't, won't want to do that when you're trying to get adaptation. No, no. You, that's where people kind of, unfortunately, whether they know it or not, are trying to. They're kind of bastardized the term specificity, right? Where yeah. it's and and that's and that's the tough thing where I got to kind of cool my jets sometimes and say, you know. The, I'll make this blanket statement. It's not an absolute, but I'll say that the tactical population has far more desire to improve on their state of readiness than any pro athletes. And I've worked with a lot of pro athletes. Hmm. I will say that the tactical population are really great consumers. And it's kind of this weird thing because, and this is why I think this is one of the reasons why is because, you know, that yes, there is this perception and there's this little bit of a reality depending on where you're at and what your job is that, the tactical space is incredibly intense at times. So we formulate that intensity or we take that intentionally and try to formulate in a program and realize that, wait a minute, like I'm burning the candle at both ends. I can never be, I can't, I'm having a hard time being healthy and my sleep is impacted. And that's why I say what gets you there doesn't keep you there, right? Once you get in, it really becomes, it's, you're not in a selection and assessment at that point. Now, I'm not talking about the tactical space where you're constantly being evaluated as a leader. I'm talking how do I get myself ready when the job that's, that's placed upon me has a tremendous amount of unique demands, right? A lot of sleep deprivation, a lot of stress, both genders. There is a, a particular, for many cases, there is this uh, inherent danger that exists and looms. So it really changes the state of training. We, we think that we need to train intense all the time. And that really is not the truth. Well, I think... Jeff, when I see people um, 
pushing themselves in efforts to create this toughness, which then become this cathartic experience in the gym. And when it's done chronically, I think we've all seen this lead down a, a, a pretty bad path, especially one towards injury, is if we can somehow get people on board with aspects of longevity and sustainability, but also within that teach mental toughness. And, and we don't have to dive into mental toughness uh, like full on, but how do you balance uh, a sound program that doesn't indulge in just letting go on each workout and getting that, like I'm laying on the ground in a heap and I, I really mentally push myself versus more of that slow, steady uh, perseverance, a way that I've heard mental toughness described in training is if you have shuttle runs or sprints, it's crossing the line and pivoting versus you're tired. You could stop short when no one's watching and cut the shuttle short. Uh, it's an analogy I like. I just wonder if that's how you perceive of a mentality around training that can also maybe toughen people, especially military personnel towards future endeavors. Yeah, you know, we, we kind of start bridging into the in a topic that's a little bit outside of my lane if I get and so I, I've been really privy and super fortunate to be on some really good sports psychologists. John Dr. John Sullivan is, is probably one of the brightest in the field, especially in the United States. I've been fortunate to be around him a lot and actually get to understand what resiliency that you know, clinically the term terminology is resiliency. Uh, and when we're talking about mental toughness and such. And I think that it can get fairly complex. But it doesn't need to start complex. And we're talking about, quote unquote, mental toughness. And I like to, you know, there's a, there's a, this synonymous phrase of never quitting is very synonymous with mental toughness. And I think people don't understand that two those two words. Never means never, ever, like never, ever. Like that just means like, well, never quit. And like, well, I kind of quit some. No, listen. And that here's so here's the solution. Here's one of the solutions from a standpoint of teaching the word never. Don't start off with things that you know you can't achieve, right? You, it, it's practice. You've, you've already said it, that, that, that perseverance, that, that the way that we approach thing, people undervalue mastering the little stuff first. And the little stuff is just, a lot of times is just consistency or you wanna say throughput. You know, like a lot of the police and fire departments because of the, well, not primarily, but a couple of years ago, there was a lawsuit where a female was almost beat to death, female officer, and she she filed a lawsuit against the police department in Colorado Springs, won it because they're like, she's like, well, why do I have to be in shape? I don't have to, it's not my job. And they cited on her case, and now there's all these SWAT teams all over the country that had that had to get rid of their, their, their tests, their physical readiness tests, because it's not part of, and so we've diluted this idea that, you know, we, the military, for example, we'll just use that, and even police and for, police and law enforcement, is a pillar of their their organization is physical readiness, right? This is why there's tests to get into these things because that's why there's an ASVAP to get in the military because if you don't have a certain IQ, we know that we can't hold enough information to be useful. So, and I look at that as the physical, you know, I say. Well, if you're going to have, if you're going to place this human under certain demands, don't we want to make sure that they can actually learn it or at least accomplish it, right? It's like saying, like for me, I was a very small child 
and I love football, but I got knocked around the football field, right? And so it's like, okay, it doesn't matter if I love it and I want to do it. If When I'm on the football field at 100 pounds and I'm playing against guys that are 225, like there really isn't anything that I can provide of value. And so that's what I look at weight training in the police. And I said, yeah, we don't, I don't expect people to look and train and be like me. That's not it at all. But there are certain demands that are undeniable, right? You have to be able to handle an individual if you're not allowed to use a firearm, right? You have to learn how to subdue them. And there takes a certain amount of physicality and mental toughness involved in that. And if you start removing the idea that, well, you don't have to be physically ready. Well, then you don't have to be mentally ready either because for somebody, the best way to develop mental toughness is through the physical, right? Is physical acts of training, not just weight training, but just, hey, I'm going to be there on time and you're on time. You develop that toughness because you develop that routine and toughness is no difference. Like weight training is hard. The job is hard. Life is hard. Be there every day. Be present. And that's why I look at mental toughness is you've got to practice it. It's not something you just snap your fingers and you've got it. My mental toughness was through years and years of my parents saying, you don't quit. It's not acceptable. And I actually practiced that, right? And that's the difference for as far as I'm concerned. And I, I think that that idea of making it a, a practice and, and almost being patient in the practice can help people understand the value of the process focus versus the outcome focus. Do you find that in hearing you speak of the importance of that process, do you, because of course you've put in that time to develop the uh, appreciation for and the just like, I guess, daily grind that goes into getting better at a particular task over the years, do you find that uh, it's something that you try to really teach is the process? Is it something that you're actively speaking to people about? Or do you try to find these ways such as like going up on time and just putting in the reps as something that they can learn uh, by doing without having to make this like a, a big speech, if that makes sense? Because I feel like a lot of times people hear it's the process, not the outcome, but anyone can push hard in a workout to develop that sense of I pushed mentally through a single challenge, but can they actually stick it out through the process over a longer time? I've always been myself a little bit uncertain. I feel almost preachy when I say it, even though I know it's true. Yeah. And, and you're, we can pull a lot of examples. Let's, let's just, here's, we'll just use this example for no reason. Then it just jumps into my head. Look at a tough mutter. Think about the people who developed that. Like it, it they, they are very likely were athletes, but and you can kind of look at it and go, well, they wouldn't have to be. Maybe they were engineers that developed those courses, right? Maybe they were. And then you look at the people who did it. Well, how did they train for it? Is there a difference between the people that are trying to be really competitive and then there's really trying to have fun? But also in that context of the Tough Mudder, look at the people that really wanted to be competitive and train incorrectly for it. And then you have the people that really wanted to be competitive and trained correctly for whatever that means for it. There's going to be a difference of outcome. There's going to be an extreme difference of outcome, and there should be, right? I look at it as a recipe. If your recipe is to get bigger muscles, what should the ingredients look like? It should be low percentage, high volume over time. 
that's what that's hypertrophy, right? And then the question is like, well, what's low percentage? It's relative to the individual and it's relative to the movement, right? It's relative to the exercise. So you're you're one hundred percent on target as far as I'm concerned. There's three things that are most important, in my opinion, that give you like a thirty thousand foot view, but really give, I guess, traction to what we're saying: purpose, process, and love. Have a purpose, and everyone's got a different one, and it's so it's it's, it's going to change, and it's going to be challenged, and all these sort of things. But right, really, what it comes down to is that recipe, and that's process. Process is everything because if you are training, and this is a simple thing, and that's where people just get outside their heads. If for a second and just use a little bit of common sense to go, let's take five different athletes, take football player, basketball player, ice skater, and a, and a ranger and go, you guys are going to do strength training for your sport and you give them the same program. What are you going to get? You're going to get the same results relative to each individual's gender, age, size, training experience, whatever it is. The program is a recipe. If it's a hypertrophy program, they're all going to get bigger, right? They will get stronger inherently as well, but it's like, the, the recipe drives the outcome exactly how you're saying. And we've got to understand, we really do, especially in high stress environments, the high corporate stress, the high military stress, the high sports stress, whatever it is, that the higher the stress, the more imperative that that process is paying attention to that person. Like, okay, you're super, super stressed out because of reason X, Y, and Z, family, life, job, whatever it is. And now you taking this program that's not conducive for the goals you're trying to achieve, you're just creating more stress. And process is everything. It's, it's everything that we do. And we shouldn't scratch our heads and go, I just did this 12-week program and I don't know why this didn't happen. And then you take one second at it and go, well, what are you doing? And they're like, well, I was trying to do this, this program, hypertrophy, and it was doing five by five. Well, that's not enough volume. You can just do the math and see it right? Do Newton's third law and figure the math out. It's not going to happen, right? And so it, the, the math is there. And here's the, here's the fact. The fact is every single program, you should be able to take the math, literally the math. Work equals force times distance and force equals mass times acceleration. Calculate work capacity. Transfer that into what we're trying to do. Strength, endurance, power, speed, whatever we're doing. Those numbers exist. Dr. Hatfield came up with them. Unfortunately, he passed away, but he left a legacy of this is a no-brainer, okay? And it's it's unfortunate that you have all this ridiculousness out there that people are just having to filter through, and it, and it, it makes me sad. You said the last one was love. Can you touch on, on that and, and how this – because it sounds like the process uh, aspect of this uh, that came through years of your own, like you said, uh, personal education, uh, the mentoring that you received, time you spent in the military – where did this aspect of love come into it and how would you define that in the context of, of, of this model? Yeah, and it's different for everyone. For me, the love falls into the category of, I really appreciate a lot of people out there teaching. I really appreciate having the information available to me so I can navigate my purpose and I can navigate my process of, of a refinement because it's supposed to be enjoyable. It really is. Training is supposed to be enjoyable. Why? Because it it provides us a physiological benefit, but also it provides us exactly what like we want to be tougher. We want to have more mental clarity. We want to be able to make decisions under stress. We want our loved ones to look at us as 
as protectors and we want, you know, it's like, there's no, there's nothing weak about being stronger, right? There's nothing weak about being a better runner. There's nothing weak about, about that. And I, and I love that idea because you, you can draw any conclusion from what your goal is. If like, I really want to do this. Yes. That's, it doesn't matter what your goal is. They're all good. It all stems from love. And and this is something we can do for the rest of our life. And it shouldn't be something that stresses us out. You know, there are certainly times where you're like, man, I just don't feel like going to the gym. Understand, right? Understand that. But for so many people to put so much time into weight training or running or whatever it is, why are we doing it, right? It's because we love it and we should. And when you love something, you further educate yourself. And I think that that's the big thing too is, now, granted, there's a lot of people that are never going to be professionals and educated in this world. But I, again, I was listening to a really fantastic podcast recently as well. And a, a good friend of mine was saying, you know, I he was a coach at some point and still is a coach. And he goes, you know, I just, I just got to the point where I was so tired of training people that wanted to be here less than I wanted them there. And, and then I think that that's the big thing for me is the military population for the most part uh, in comparison by majority, they really want good coaches. They really want somebody to go, all right, you're doing a great job, but let's tweak this a little bit. So you get better benefits. So you get more longevity. So you get more time at home with family. You get, you get your job satisfaction is much higher. And it just love is all of that. If, if you have a really good process, then you're going to, the likelihood of you really loving what you do and enjoying it is, is going to be much higher. That's something that you look to because when in following you on, on social media, there is a lot of inspiration to gain from it. Um, is this something that you try to work on with athletes if they kind of haven't figured out that first part yet, their purpose? Is it something that you look for the training to accomplish it in and of itself? And if they can't find that purpose through training, maybe training is not the best way or you find yourself, and, and this is not to, I, I feel like there's so many people out there who are like motivational speakers, and, and, and I feel like that's become almost like a negative term now. But you find yourself trying to inspire people to find their purpose, whether it's through exercise or not, uh, because that is the first, at least seemingly, tenant of this, this purpose, process, and love, or is it something that is, is more self-searching. It has to come from the individual. You know, it's it really, you're, it's a, it is a fantastic question and, and trying to drive an absolute conclusion of that. All I can do is speak for myself really is that for me, you know, when we're, when we're talking about motivating somebody, you have to know, there has to be one question that you first have to ask them and that's why are you doing this? And and a lot of people are reserved as to like, well, like inside, like maybe, and this is perfectly acceptable answer. People have this stigma, like there's a bad answer to that question. I want to look good naked. I want to do like, there is, that's, that's where we as teachers have done a really poor job of delivering, um, delivering the message of saying, you know what? It doesn't matter what your the reason why you want to go get a gym membership or the reason why you want to go get your new running shoes and new running outfit and start training. Like we've created this idea that 
Well, if you're not following the social media norms of, of, you know, what we see, which is good, but it's not bad. It's just the way that the world is like, we've just categorized everyone as like, not enemies, but we're like, well, if you're not into fitness, then you're, you're not in a CrossFit and you're not in a powerlifting and we're just all segregated and separated. And like, I derive so much information from everywhere. I have friends that are world-class powerlifters. I have friends that are world-class Olympic weightlifters. I have, you know, and I look at it all and go, what, instead of me saying, well, I'm on this side of weight training and you're on that side of weight training and we can't possibly see eye to eye. I think that that's why there's this big rift because at the end of the day, then now, now it becomes a, it, it becomes a marketing issue. Who can market the best? Well, I'm not going to market. I'm just going to give you facts. And that for me has been how I've been able to keep my mind without getting pulled and taking sides. I, there is not an aspect of sport that I don't appreciate. Now, execution of that aspect or coaching of the aspect I might have words with, but anybody willing to stand up and go, you know what? I want to lose weight. I'm behind you. Anyone stands up and goes, I want to be a CrossFit games winner. I'm behind you. Anyone, anyone, because it's going to take weight training to get there. It's going to take a lot of hard work. And that for me is the biggest thing is that when someone says, I want to do this, when it involves any sort of physical activity, you support it. Right, you don't you don't create lines in the sand of like pick a side. Are you Orange Theory? Are you CrossFit? Yeah. Before they've even decided whether they like it or not. Yeah. Say I tell people, you know what? I don't. They go, I don't know what I like. Okay, we'll spend a week in a CrossFit gym. Spend a week at a Globo gym. Just spend a week trying to figure out what you like. Riding a bike, whatever. Do that first. And if you do that first, you just can't lose. Right? You just can't lose. And that's also why I love the I love weight training. You just can't lose. Yeah, really. Yeah, that's and, great. And I think it because you really hit it on the head with it does, especially just how we communicate now via social media, which really highlights at least for those who want to have like cast their web to however many thousands of followers. It, it, it's how to market best, and it's hard to market around the phenomenon of what you just described, uh, right? Because you're not marketing any one particular thing you're, you're, you're really marketing uh the individualistic experience of, of exercise and, and and helping uh people on that journey and allowing them to explore what works best for them that uh, is something that they can be consistent with versus forcing something on them because i think we can all agree like if if we write a strength and conditioning program there'll be some crossfitters in town who say oh that looks like CrossFit and some weightlifters will be like, Oh, well, like I've done snatches before. So that's weightlifting. And the powerlifters will see bench press and they'll all be kind of confused. They're like, well, why do you do all of it? And we, we kind of chuckle at that. Cause we tell them like, well, it's just strength and conditioning. Like it's all really coming from the same place. As you mentioned earlier, it's not reinventing the wheel. So it's totally up to the individual to find perhaps what aspect in particular, if there is one is most purposeful or most enjoyable if, if that sounds like a, a good uh, uh, synopsis of, of what you're trying to say there yeah like i think the, the best thing to say for me is that no particular exercise is owned by any genre yeah right? the olympic snatch isn't owned by it's funny because i and, and I'm, I'm 
let me be very, I am not a CrossFit hater in any stretch, but this was just, it, it, this was an ironic moment. I was in Vegas with the head strength coach for the Eagles, the director of sports science a couple of years ago. And uh, we were sitting there and the, we were, we, he and I were both working on Olympic lifts just in a, in a Gold's gym in Vegas that we were at a conference together and someone came up and was like, Hey, you guys do CrossFit? And we're like, <laughs> no, we don't actually. But, and the guy just, he, he was like, well, yeah, you do. You're doing it. And like, no, like this was, and it was just a very strange interaction where, but so to my point is, is that that's why it's all, that's why this is all fantastic is because, you know, someone may very well think that that is a CrossFit movement, which, which is, which is extremely prevalent and in, in its own right. I understand why it's our, it's confused as such. However, that's what here's, I guess my point is, is this is I was under the impression, even kind of when I started going down this new business venture of like educating and I had a lot of questions from people coming in emails and I was like, oh, what do I do? I, so that's why I created a YouTube channel just to kind of, that was going to be my frequently asked question page and it's turned into a really great resource for me to just say, hey, check out my YouTube page. But I do that because I was under the impression a long time ago, like so many people are. And so here's, here's the advice I have for a lot of young coaches. Even if, if you have 100 followers or 10,000 or whatever it is, don't assume that the, the population that's following you understands how to do the basics, right? And what I mean is, is like, don't just assume everyone knows how to properly execute a back squat because there is a right way. And there is, an, or let me phrase that, there's a more optimal way for person's experience, body type and injuries and whatever, right? So go over it. And, and, and when you do that, and you're, especially if you're doing it in a population that may have some trouble doing it, as a coach, you got to go, all right, well, shoot, if they can't do the barbell back squat, let's not, as professionals, say omit. Let's say, okay, if you can't do the barbell yet, well, can you do the goblet? Can you do this? Like, let's let's stop eliminating things. And I get this all the time from people that go, yeah, my coach said don't ever do this because I can't do this. I'm like, well, you just eliminated a primary mover. We got to learn how to do it. And so I think that that's like a big thing in our in our community, but we all need to come together and go, you know what, let's all of us really focus on the basics and each one of us as coaches, let's learn cues that now we can affect, right? If you're only coaching cue in the back squat is bop, bop, bop for every male, female, young, old, regardless of sport, you're limited. Let's start finding cues that you can affect as many people as possible rather than omitting stuff. And I've, I've mentioned uh, in other shows that we've had recently, and it's just funny as I reflect on my own training, is that there are some uh, exercises perhaps where we might, we might not program them or even be like too, too fond of it, but nothing's really like off limits entirely. Where I've, I've learned now, it's just fine. Like you said, you know, you have the physics and physiology. There are exercises that you can really find to meet the context of one of those equations for a particular type of individual. Like I never thought that I would use the Smith machine during a hypertrophy cycle to hit my quads, but I feel it really well. Like yeah. I've, when I was growing up, I made fun of this. Yeah. It's like, or, if, yeah. if you don't do like you're, you're lame, if you do that or like, the seated abduction machine, like <laughs> how else am I going to hit my, my adductors? It, it, things that when I first uh, started, I, I, I would never have imagined, but just kind of finding the context of it all to make it 
enjoyable and to make it, uh, I think that that's what it's just, it's training. Like it's not like it, when, when we get to specificity, it, it's for sport. Right. But like outside of sport, it's really just all like all open field. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But the only, and that's the thing too, is, you know, the only, again, for, for the general person that's not really competing on a sport or like the competing for the games or Highland games or something, you know, where specificity might come into, and this is its general, the specificity just comes into your, into your life. Who's that general consistent, constant year after your trainer training individuals that you still need to create some phases to eliminate plateaus. Right. And it doesn't have to be nearly as specific as an athlete, but it's like, I tell people all the time, it's like, Oh, I really, I'm really having a hard time. Like with, with getting my reps and sets up in my hypertrophy phase, it just, I'm, I'm gassing. And I go, well, you probably should take a take a couple of weeks off and work on your aerobic base. I'm like, well, wait a minute. That aerobic base is going to eliminate my size. I'm like, no, if you do it right, your size needs basically a filter. You, you need to take the new muscle you've got. You need to improve on your ability to transport oxygen. You need to work on your hemoglobin uh, transferring oxygen. Well, what do we do? We do a low-state cardio, sustained cardio. Now your recovery rates in between your sets are going to shorten up. Now you can get more work volume in a shorter period of time. And, and we, we've we perpetuated this idea. I say we, I'm guilty of it too in my years of being a know-it-all young strength coach is that they, we need them all. Like we really, really do folks. And it, and it sucks because I like to lift heavy weights. I like to lift moderate weights over great distances. You know what I don't like doing? I don't like running. So I got to find a way to get my cardiovascular shape up if I'm not going to run. But I do love doing sprint work on tracks. So it's like you got to find that happy medium. And I guess my point is, is that if you're a strength coach or if you're, if you're an athlete or if you're just you're in the gym every single day and this goes along with process and you're like, you know what? I've kind of plateaued. Well, look at what you've been not been doing. And there's a, probably a reason why you've hit this big plateau aside from, you know, joint instability and those sort of things like, Hey, I feel healthy. My diet's on point. I'm sleeping pretty good and I'm on a good routine, but darn it. I can't get over this strength or this. I can't drop my, my time on this run or swim. Well, it's probably because you're neglecting your weakness and it's, it's kind of holding back your strengths. And I think that comes full circle to the needs analysis, as you mentioned, how there, there are perhaps those weaknesses that we might not know exist Hence why you might receive coaching from someone who can make a little bit more of an objective call to create that needs analysis for you. Because we had, um, uh, do you follow um, Renaissance periodization or any of their- I do, yeah. I've, I've been fortunate enough to meet Dr. Mike Isertel a couple of times and, oh, and, and, and Brian, they're, they're pretty bright folks. Yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah, we, we've had Dr. Isertel on and we, we just recently had- um, James Hoffman on, and he was talking about how the needs analysis allows you to manipulate those volume landmarks for efficiency purposes in terms of time, right? So if you've plateaued and you've identified that that aerobic base is your limiter, well, then you don't have to juggle too many things at once because you can basically put the strengths on like minimum effective volume. So like do enough of them so they don't get worse, but then really go after what uh, needs most improving. So I do like how that's kind of come full circle, right? There's like a way to work it all, but the best results, you have to kind of look at what you need most as an individual. 
Yeah. What I like to say, just ge just general guidelines. This is where I start with people. I say, hey, every six weeks, just take a look at what you've been doing, right? Maybe you can extend that to eight. Maybe you need to shift and go go do some. You know, it might just be a shift for like you know, I, I just need to lift heavier weights for a couple of weeks. Or the or real a lot of a lot of common things for just the general consumer that's going to the box every day, going to the gyms every day. Just go. All right, let's make a point folks for at least every once every six to eight weeks to do 10 days of, of something you wouldn't normally do or deload. Yeah. And that right there will just, you'll just stay ahead of the game. And the reason why people, it's hard for them to wrap their head around this idea. But if they, if, if I tell them this, they tend to go, they kind of give me the little like cute puppy head nod look and they go, huh, he might have be onto something. I just go, listen, it, it, if we took look at a calendar of 365 days and I say, let's make a point to take one day off a week at least, right, of those 52 weeks. And then we just go, well, that sounds like a terrible idea, take, <laughs> taking 52 weeks out of 365. Why would I ever do that? You know. But if you look at them and go, well, because if you don't, you're going to actually end up taking off 75 or 80 or 90 or 100 days. I'm like, why would I do that? Because you're going to be hurt. And then if you go, if you don't, if you now on the other side, I go, let's say that you, you, your borderline don't, you don't even get hurt, but you've only taken 60 days off. Well, of the rest of the rest of the 305 days, how many of those days do you feel like you are really going in on fumes? And so you really kind of missed training days, or at least they weren't optimal. But if you take day off, go, I'm really freaking tired today, or you deload on purpose every six to eight weeks for 10 days and still train, but do something else that's that's either a different challenge or not as challenging. Well, by the end of the calendar year, not only did you not miss days due to training, but you also, the days that you were training, you were able to train in a much higher intensity, carry a far more workload, and not just go through the motions. And that having that conversation during the needs analysis to set them on the right direction to go, this is why we're taking every sixth day off or whatever. It's it's a conversation worth having for sure. Uh, with the tactical athlete, and I, I think you started hinting at it before. I, I guess well, I'll leave with the first question and then maybe like a follow-up is that I would imagine if you were to deload, say reduction in training volumes, if volume is high or reduction in training load, if load is high, but imagine that's a great time to get in your like field specific work or, or, or the, the work that you might need with say like your firearms or, or whatever your uh, law enforcement job or military job requires. Do, do you sometimes for your military personnel uh, follow that? Like maybe getting them out of the gym and doing more uh, uh, stuff specific to the actual job rather than the performance work. Yeah. I mean, you're, 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 you're following the exact guidelines that sport high performance sport follows, right? So you come in the off season of football, for example, or you come in the off season post selection, like you get through buds or you get through a football training camp. What do we do? We got to get healthy. Step number one, get them healthy, get them recover, take a couple days off, do some hydrotherapy list that goes on and on and on. Right. And then why do we, so then now seasons approaching, what do we, we train really, really hard, train really, really hard season continued approach now we deload so we go healthy going into it right and so the, the conundrum then is that okay well the tactical population always has to be ready right having that cliche statement exist 
further lends the lends us to the idea that we really do have to pay attention to our workload because if we're constantly in a state of overtraining stress when we encounter those really stressful things those tactical stressful things we may not see degradation in that right in that moment like pursuing an individual clearing a room whatever it may be but coming off of it like hey you come off target you're doing a debrief you're all stressed out what do we do right we haven't we haven't utilized the weight training or our ability to manage stress uh, to to our benefit we just pile on more of it so you're you're absolutely right we do want to take the training and say hey listen why are you here you're you're a Navy seal okay so what is the job of the Navy SEAL and tile? And well, this mission, I have to do X, Y, and Z, right? It includes these physical things. I have to walk you know, a long, great distance. I have to carry a load and oh, I have to skydive to get in, okay? So what physical demands is that place on an individual? Like same thing as like, what are the physiological, physical demands put on a wide receiver, right? We know they're gonna even be in motion in the NFL an average of 13 minutes per game, no more, no less on average. We know they're going to cover this distance, this speed. This is their body weight. So we dissect that for the for the wide receiver. Well, we look at the ranger. Hey, you're going to be working at 12,000 feet. You weigh 170 pounds. You're carrying 47 pounds of work of load. Um, this is the altitude you're going to you're going to go up and go down. Now we can take that and go. Well, how many calories am I going to burn? Well, based off of altitude, age, distance, weight carried, this is the average caloric intake you're going to need, right? I did all those calculations for years when I was in the military, so I know exactly what my needs were. And people thought I was crazy. And then I said, hey, we need to do it, get better food. We need to get better this. And they go, why would you do that? Well, here's, here's the reason why, because I'm 1,300 calories every night in depletion, and I'm still expected to go longer further, right? So that's what we're looking at. Like The military accounts for everything, just like baseball, right? They, they, they have stats for stats for stats. And for us to go, the military right now is saying we are at a pandemic level. We are, I think the Army has said, 84% of all injuries sustained in the U.S. military or U.S. Army are non-combat related. They are PT related. So why are we still doing the same stuff for and to our folks that know, we know, we know, we know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, if you if you were in school, if you were in college, and your 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 you know your your math test and your science test, you were getting a twenty six on it, or a, a, yeah, twenty six. That's your percentage of success is twenty six percent. If you're getting eighty four percent of your questions wrong, that's a terrible grade. You know, the United States military has has the means. It's just here's the conundrum getting off on the rails a little bit, but and I understand that. The military, the law enforcement, and fire. Here's the conundrum, and this is the one of the biggest problems uh, that they they're having to encounter now, and they're struggling is because understand, and this is the right approach to have, but this might be the the exception. The military needs to be self-sustaining. Police forces need to be self-sustaining, right? Because budgets are an issue, and they need the people internally to perpetuate and teach that information. Like they've always done that. Like now there are some units that are going to bring in firearm instructors and you know, that's a different argument. But for the vast majority of our military and fire and law enforcement, where are they getting their education? They're getting it in-house. So that's why education has to be there. And the Army is about to do it. And so is the Marine Corps where 
my credentialing as a certified strength conditioning specialist potentially is about to become an MLS. And that is incredibly exciting for me and I couldn't be more pleased for the Army to make that decision because I think that's how we do that. We Then it is self-sustaining. It's internally self-sustaining by a civilian resource. And um, I know I'm kind of off the rails here a little bit because no, it's okay. it's, I'm, I'm passionate about it and I'm passionate mostly about it because the information exists. And um, with my experience, and this is the last soapbox speech, I promise, that my last experience, you know, I spent a fair amount of time in professional athletics and, 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 and in college. And there's always, there's always a limiting factor, right? And limiting factors usually include, is it, do they have the right coaches? Do they have the right equipment? Do they have the right spaces? And do they have the right money? Those are the four. I mean, there's others, but it's like Alabama doesn't have an issue with money, right? Yeah. Doesn't have an issue with location, resources, and coaches. There's no limitation. It's just their internal decision. You go to a local high school, do they have the coaches? Do they have the staff? They might have stellar athletes. So that's what brings, that's what creates the difference between their competitors. In the military, for the most part, it has exceptionally exceptional good consumers and people, good money. For the most part, uh, facilities are improving. So I'm looking and go, what's the, what's the limiting factor? The limiting factor is getting out information that these guys and men and women can use. Um, a question that I kind of have selfishly, but I, and, and then being respectful of your time, we'll make this the last question, is understanding that, because you said that there's a lot of, Civilians working hard to help active duty personnel uh, and understanding that, especially for those who have been uh, on front lines and have had plenty of time in active duty, are there any considerations outside of just being a good, and this would be, I guess, specifically for a coach, outside of being just a good human being and a good coach and a good listener, any considerations that a coach should have who's coaching either a, a veteran or someone who's active duty for the first time, just based on the differences of everyday civilian life and what you might experience in your active duty. Yeah, I, I, it's. I'm going to try my best to because that can go a bunch of different ways depending on the person, right? Uh, what they've been exposed to, what they've been experienced, what their level of trauma is, what their level of education is, and so forth. So, your average veteran, you know. And this, 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 I think that this statement can, is synonymous with, with humanity for the most part is, and you've said it, communication. When you, when you, when you ethically communicate with people, you, you build rapport, right? You build trust and those sort of things. And, the, and those are so incredibly valuable. And that's, that's why the veteran population, I'm giving you air quotes here, veteran population has this perceived and actual sort of uh, brotherhood, if you will. There is this common thread of communication that we exist because we've we've all chose to endure some some level of service. So, and, and here's the thing too, is for the most part, our military tactical athletes, what the best advice I can give to a coach is give them the best level of education that you have to offer because they're going to consume it. They really will. And that's why I really enjoy work because they're, and this is what I mean is, I really enjoy working with them because they are the why population. Why are we doing this? Yeah. Well, you're doing it because of this, but why? Well, because yeah. of this, this, and this. 
yeah, but we did it this way or why are we, and they're not trying to be disrespectful. Just understand it's like, and this is, this is, this is maybe a bad analogy, but it don't make sense is that like I was, my son's 11 and he was loading the dishwasher the other day. And I was like, Mason, why did you do it like this? You didn't do it right. And, and I looked at him initially and I, he looked at me like this blank stare in his, in his eyes. And I go, I just instantly realized that I didn't give him my expectations. I just assumed that 11 year old kid was going to load this dishwasher perfectly because I do it a certain way over and over and over every day. Well, just know that about the tactical population. Don't assume, right? Even if they're nodding their head, yes, because of and it's just veterans and people in general, we don't like to look vulnerable. We don't like to be vulnerable. We don't like to feel vulnerable for the most part, especially when we're talking about strength training and going to the weight room. Like it's like we all just kind of, you know what a, you know, reverse hyperism, we just kind of nod our head. Yeah. <laughs> just do, do the veteran population and the sports population us a favor as coaches. Just teach them. Assume they don't know. If they don't know, it's probably likely that they're going to go, hey, man, like we've already covered this. Can we move on? Assume that they don't know and begin to teach. And as teachers, use that opportunity to become a better teacher and, and learn different cues because a lot of times the veteran population is going to be stubborn, extremely stubborn. So um, embrace it because they're fantastic consumers. Oh, yeah. And, and some of the most committed and loyal having uh, worked with them. And, and I think that they're definitely uh, going to ask why. But like you said, it's just because they are great consumers. They want to know it's not anything personal, nor should you have an attachment to anything that you're teaching that you should feel the need to defend. But it, like you said, it just comes down to education. I think it reminds us the more that we get people on the show who are of a similar open-mindedness uh, and wanting not just to educate others, but continue to learn more themselves, that I think we're, we're heading in the right direction. And in speaking I language. So, Jeff, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to come on today. We really appreciate it. Yes. Yeah, honestly, it's, it's my pleasure. I, uh, like I said, off camera, um, I've had the pleasure, truly pleasure. I've had the best coaches in the world give me their time and give me their love and give me their, share with me their process. Like really, like I've, Louise Burke, who's the most published dietitian in the world, I've gotten to just grab her ear and Shona Housen, the sleep and recovery experts from Australia and Cal Dietz. And I mean, I'm name dropping because I'm thankful, not because I'm as good as them. Like I, Mark Stevenson, who's with the Lions, who is the basically the creator of tactical strength conditioning. It was a program manager for years here in Virginia. Like I just had take the opportunity to, to thank them because, uh, my words cannot express my level of gratitude for the information they've g given to me. And uh, uh, I appreciate anyone willing to share information, not just with me, but with their clients. And you know, just because you mentioned Cal Dietz, and I think in people listening and, and who will tune into you and learn about sport and performance uh, from an educational standpoint there, uh, you know, you have a lot to offer it sounds like this, just wrapping up on mental toughness, it is process-based. It is something that we can learn through people's attitudes and behaviors and what's coming through. I remember you mentioned you just mentioned Cal Dietz. He, I remember his quote, he said, the Navy SEALs never made anyone tough. They just found the tough people who were willing to stay in the Navy SEALs. And it sounds like the act of staying in the Navy SEALs requires that purpose and process and perhaps love for your 
your comrades or your community. And hopefully, I'm, I, I think at least I am gaining a, a clear understanding of what mental toughness might mean. And it's not as much a, a single action. It's just repeated bouts of those very three things. Uh, so again, thank you so much, Jeff. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thank you.